Chapter 7 of The Loss of the SS Titanic by Lawrence Beasley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter 7 The Carpathia's Return to New York. The journey of the Carpathia from the time she caught the CQD from the Titanic at about 12.30 a.m. on Monday morning and turned swiftly about to her rescue until she arrived at New York on the following Thursday at 8.30 p.m. was one that demanded of the captain, officers, and crew of the vessel the most exact knowledge of navigation, the utmost vigilance in every department, both before and after the rescue, and a capacity for organization that must sometimes have been taxed to the breaking point. The extent to which all these qualities were found present, and the manner in which they were exercised, stands to be the everlasting credit of the Cunard Line and those of its servants who were in charge of the Carpathia. Captain Rostron's part in all this is a great one, and wrapped up, though his action is, in a modesty that is conspicuous in its nobility, it stands out even in his own account as a piece of work well and courageously done. As soon as the Titanic called for help and gave her position, the Carpathia was turned and headed north. All hands were called on duty. A new watch of stokers was put on, and the highest speed of which she was capable was demanded of the engineers, with the result that the distance of 58 miles between the two ships was covered in three and a half hours, a speed well beyond her normal capacity. The three doctors on board each took charge of a saloon, in readiness to render help to any who needed their services. The stewards and catering staff were hard at work preparing hot drinks and meals, and the purser's staff, ready with blankets and berths for the shipwrecked passengers as soon as they got on board. On deck, the sailors got ready lifeboats, swung them out on the davits, and stood by, prepared to lower away their crews if necessary. Fixed rope ladders, cradle chairs, nooses, and bags for the children at the hatches to haul the rescued up to the side. On the bridge was the captain with his officers, peering into the darkness eagerly to catch the first signs of the crippled Titanic, hoping, in spite of her last despairing message of sinking by the head, to find her still afloat when her position was reached. A double watch of lookout men was set, for there were other things as well as the Titanic to look for that night, and soon they found them. As Captain Rostron said in his evidence, they saw icebergs on either side of them between 2.45 and 4 a.m. Passing 20 large ones, 100 to 200 feet high, and many smaller ones, and frequently had to maneuver the ship to avoid them. It was a time when every faculty was called upon for the highest use of which it was capable. With the knowledge before them that the enormous Titanic, the supposedly unsinkable ship had struck ice and was sinking rapidly. With the lookout constantly calling to the bridge, as he must have done, icebergs on the starboard, icebergs on the port, it required courage and judgment beyond the ordinary to drive the ship ahead through that lane of icebergs and maneuver around them. As he himself said, he took the risk of full speed in his desire to save life, and probably some people might blame him for taking such a risk. But the Senate committee assured him that they, at any rate, would not, 
and we of the lifeboats have certainly no desire to do so. The ship was finally stopped at 4 a.m., with an iceberg reported dead ahead, the same, no doubt, we had to row around in boat 13 as we approached the Carpathia, and about the same time the first lifeboat was sighted. Again, she had to be maneuvered round the iceberg to pick up the boat, which was the one in charge of Mr. Boxhall. From him, the captain learned that the Titanic had gone down, and that he was too late to save anyone but those in lifeboats, which he could now see drawing up from every part of the horizon. Meanwhile, the passengers of the Carpathia, some of them aroused by the unusual vibration of the screw, some by sailors tramping overhead as they swung away the lifeboats and got ropes and lowering tackle ready, were beginning to come on deck just as day broke. And here an extraordinary sight met their eyes. As far as the eye could reach to the north and west lay an unbroken stretch of field ice, with icebergs still attached to the floe and rearing aloft their mass as a hill might suddenly rise from a level plain. Ahead and to the south and east, huge floating monsters were showing up through the waning darkness, their number added to, moment by moment, as the dawn broke and flushed the horizon pink. It is remarkable how busy all those icebergs made the sea look. To have gone to bed with nothing but sea and sky, and to come on deck to find so many objects in sight, made quite a change in the character of the sea. It looked quite crowded, and a lifeboat alongside, and people clambering aboard, mostly women, in nightdresses and dressing gowns, in cloaks and shawls, in anything but ordinary clothes. Out ahead, and on all sides, little torches glittered faintly for a few moments, and then guttered out, and shouts and cheers floated across the quiet sea. It would be difficult to imagine a more unexpected sight than this, that lay before the Carpathia's passengers as they lined the sides that morning in the early dawn. No novelist would dare to picture such an array of beautiful climatic conditions. The rosy dawn, the morning star, the moon on the horizon, the sea stretching in level beauty to the skyline. And on this sea, to place an ice field like the Arctic regions and icebergs in numbers everywhere white and turning pink and deadly cold and near them rowing round the icebergs to avoid them little boats coming suddenly out of mid-ocean with passengers rescued from the most wonderful ship the world has known no artist would have conceived such a picture it would have seemed so highly dramatic as to border on the impossible and would not have been attempted such a combination of events would pass the limit permitted by the imagination of both author and artist. The passengers crowded the rails and looked down at us as we rode up in the early morning, stood quietly aside while the crew at the gangways below took us aboard and watched us as if the ship had been in dock and we had rowed up to join her in a somewhat unusual way. Some of them have related that we were very quiet as we came aboard. It is quite true, we were, but so were they. There was very little excitement on either side, just the quiet demeanor of people who are in the presence of something too big as yet to lie within their mental grasp and which they cannot yet discuss, 
and so they asked us politely to have hot coffee, which we did, and food, which we generally declined. We were not hungry, and they said very little at first about the lost Titanic and our adventures in the night. Much that is exaggerated and false has been written about the mental condition of passengers as they came aboard. We have been described as being too dazed to understand what was happening, as being too overwhelmed to speak, and as looking before us with set staring gaze, dazed with the shadow of the dread event. That is, no doubt, what most people would expect in the circumstances, but I know it does not give a faithful record of how we did arrive. In fact, it is simply not true. As remarked before, the one thing that matters in describing an event of this kind is the exact truth, as near as the fallible human mind can state it. And my own impression of our mental condition is that of supreme gratitude and relief at treading the firm decks of a ship again. I am aware that experiences differed considerably according to the boats occupied, that those who were uncertain of the fate of their relatives and friends had much to make them anxious and troubled, and that it is not possible to look into another person's consciousness and say what is written there. But dealing with mental conditions, as far as they are delineated by facial and bodily expressions, I think joy, relief, gratitude were the dominant emotions written on the faces of those who climbed the rope ladders and were hauled up in cradles. It must not be forgotten that no one in any boat knew who were saved in other boats. Few knew even how many boats there were and how many passengers could be saved. It was at the time probable that friends would follow them to the Carpathia or be found on other steamers or even on the pier at which we landed. The hysterical scenes that have been described are imaginative. True, one woman did fill the saloon with hysterical cries immediately after coming aboard, but she could not have known for a certainty that any of her friends were lost. Probably the sense of relief after some hours of journeying about the sea was too much for her for a time. One of the first things we did was to crowd round a steward with a bundle of telegraph forms. He was the bearer of the welcome news that passengers might send marconograms to their relatives free of charge, and soon he bore away the first sheaf of hastily scribbled messages to the operator. By the time the last boatload was aboard, the pile must have risen high in the Marconi cabin. We learned afterwards that many of these never reached their destination, and this is not a matter for surprise. There was only one operator, Cotton, on board and although he was assisted to some extent later, when Bride from the Titanic had recovered from his injuries sufficiently enough to work the apparatus, he had so much to do that he fell asleep over this work on Tuesday night, after three days' continuous duty without rest. But we did not know the messages were held back, and imagined our friends were aware of our safety. Then, too, a roll call of the rescued was held in the Carpathia's saloon on Monday, and this was Marconi to the land in advance of all messages. It seemed certain, then, that friends at home would have all anxiety removed, but there were mistakes in the official list first telegraphed. The experience of my own friends illustrates this. The Marconogram I wrote never got through to England, nor was my name ever mentioned in any list of the saved, 
even a week after landing in New York, I saw it in a black-edged final list of the missing, and it seemed certain that I had never reached the Carpathia, so much so that, as I write, there are before me obituary notices from the English papers giving a short sketch of my life in England. After landing in New York, and realizing from the lists of the saved, which a reporter showed me, that my friends had no news since the Titanic sank on Monday morning, until that night, Thursday, 9 p.m., I cabled to England at once, as I had but two shillings rescued from the Titanic. The White Star Line paid for the cables. But the messages were not delivered until 8.20 a.m. the next morning. At 9 a.m., my friends read in the papers a short account of the disaster which I had supplied to the press, so that they knew of my safety and experiences in the wreck almost at the same time. I am grateful to remember that many of my friends in London refused to count me among the missing during the three days when I was so reported. There is another side to this record of how the news came through, and a sad one indeed. Again, I wish it were not necessary to tell such things, but since they all bear on the equipment of the transatlantic lines, powerful Marconi apparatus, relays of operators, etc., it is best that they should be told. The name of an African gentleman, the same who sat near me in the library on Sunday afternoon, and whom I identified later from a photograph, was consistently reported in the lists as saved and aboard the Carpathia. His son journeyed to New York to meet him, rejoicing at his deliverance, and never found him there. When I met his family some days later, and was able to give them some details of his life aboard ship, it seemed almost cruel to tell them of the opposite experience that had befallen my friends at home. Returning to the journey of the Carpathia, the last boatload of passengers was taken aboard at 8.30 a.m. The lifeboats were hauled on deck while the collapsibles were abandoned, and the Carpathia proceeded to steam round the scene of the wreck in the hope of picking up anyone floating on wreckage. Before doing so, the captain arranged in the saloon a service over the spot where the Titanic sank, as nearly as could be calculated. A service, as he said, of respect to those who were lost and of gratitude for those who were saved. She cruised round and round the scene, but found nothing to indicate there was any hope of picking up more passengers, and as the Californian had now arrived, followed shortly afterwards by the Burma, a Russian tramp steamer, Captain Rostron decided to leave any further search to them and to make all speed with the rescued to land. As we moved round, there was surprisingly little wreckage to be seen, wooden deck chairs and small pieces of other wood, but nothing of any size. But, covering the sea in huge patches, was a mass of reddish-yellow seaweed, as we called it for want of a name. It was said to be cork, but I never heard definitely its correct description. The problem of where to land us had next to be decided. The Carpathia was bound for Gibraltar, and the captain might continue his journey there, landing us at the Azores on the way, but he would require more linen and provisions. The passengers were mostly women and children, ill-clad, disheveled, and in need of many attentions he could not give them. Then, too, he would soon be out of the range of wireless communication, with the weak apparatus his ship had, 
and he soon decided against that course. Halifax was the nearest in point of distance, but this meant steaming north through the ice, and he thought his passengers did not want to see more ice. He headed back, therefore, to New York, which he had left the previous Thursday, working all afternoon along the edge of the ice field, which stretched away north as far as the unaided eye could reach. I have wondered since if we could possibly have landed our passengers on this ice floe from the lifeboats and gone back to pick up those swimming, had we known it was there. I should think it quite feasible to have done so. It was certainly an extraordinary sight to stand on deck and see the sea covered with solid ice, white and dazzling in the sun, and dotted here and there with icebergs. We ran close up, only two or three hundred yards away, and steamed parallel to the floe, until it ended towards night, and we saw to our infinite satisfaction the last of the icebergs and the field fading away astern. Many of the rescued have no wish ever to see an iceberg again. We learned afterwards the field was nearly 70 miles long and 12 miles wide, and had lain between us and the Burma on her way to rescue. Mr. Boxhall testified that he had crossed the Grand Banks many times, but had never seen field ice before. The testimony of the captains and officers of other steamers in the neighborhood is of the same kind. They had never seen so many icebergs this time of year, or never seen such dangerous ice floes and threatening bergs. Undoubtedly, the Titanic was faced that night with unusual and unexpected conditions of ice. The captain knew not the extent of these conditions, but he knew somewhat of their existence. Alas, that he heeded not their warning. During the day, the bodies of eight of the crew were committed to the deep. Four of them had been taken out of the boats dead, and four died during the day. The engines were stopped, and all passengers on deck bared their heads, while a short service was read. When it was over, the ship steamed on again to carry the living back to land. The passengers on the Carpathia were by now hard at work finding clothing for the survivors. The barber shop was raided for ties, collars, hairpins, combs, etc., of which it happened there was a large stock in hand. One good Samaritan went round the ship with a box of toothbrushes, offering them indiscriminately to all. In some cases, clothing could not be found for the ladies and they spent the rest of the time on board in their dressing gowns and cloaks in which they came away from the titanic they even slept in them for in the absence of berths women had to sleep on the floor of the saloons and in the library each night on straw palliasses and here it was not possible to undress properly the men were given the smoking room floor and a supply of blankets but the room was small, and some elected to sleep out on deck. I found a pile of towels on the bathroom floor ready for the next morning's baths, and made up a very comfortable bed on these. Later, I was waked in the middle of the night by a man offering me a berth in his four-berth cabin. Another occupant was unable to leave his berth for physical reasons, and so the cabin could not be given up to ladies. On Tuesday, the survivors met in the saloon and formed a committee among themselves to collect subscriptions for a general fund, 
out of which it was resolved by vote to provide as far as possible for the destitute among the steerage passengers to present a loving cup to captain rostron and medals to the officers and crew of the carpathia and to divide any surplus among the crew of the titanic the work of this committee is not yet june first at an end but all the resolutions except the last one have been acted upon and that is now receiving the attention of the committee the presentations to the captain and crew were made the day the carpathia returned to new york from her mediterranean trip and it is a pleasure to all the survivors to know that the united states senate has recognized the service rendered to humanity by the carpathia and has voted captain rostron a gold medal commemorative of the rescue on the afternoon of tuesday i visited the steerage in company with a fellow passenger to take down the names of all who were saved we grouped them into nationalities english irish and swedish mostly and learned from them their names and homes the amount of money they possessed and whether they had friends in america the irish girls almost universally had no money rescued from the wreck and were going to friends in new york or places near while the swedish passengers among whom were a considerable number of men had saved the greater part of their money and in addition had railway tickets through to their destinations inland the saving of their money marked a curious racial difference for which i can offer no explanation no doubt the irish girls never had very much but they must have had the necessary amount fixed by the immigration laws there were some pitiful cases of women with children and the husband lost some with one or two children saved and the others lost in one case a whole family was missing and only a friend left to tell of them among the irish group was one girl of really remarkable beauty black hair and deep violet eyes with long lashes and perfectly shaped features and quite young not more than eighteen or twenty i think she lost no relatives on the titanic the following letter to the london times is reproduced here to show something of what our feeling was on board the carpathia towards the loss of the titanic it was written soon after we had the definite information on the wednesday that ice warnings had been sent to the titanic and when we all felt that something must be done to awaken public opinion to safeguard ocean travel in the future we were not aware of course how much the outside world knew and it seemed well to do something to inform the english public of what had happened at as early an opportunity as possible i have not had occasion to change any of the opinions expressed in this letter sir as one of few surviving englishmen from the steamship titanic which sank in mid-atlantic on monday morning last i am asking you to lay before your readers a few facts concerning the disaster in the hope that something may be done in the near future to ensure the safety of that portion of the traveling public who uses the atlantic highway for business or pleasure i wish to dissociate myself entirely from any report that would seek to fix the responsibility on any person or persons or body of people and by simply calling attention to matters of fact the authenticity of which is i think beyond question and can be established in any court of inquiry 
to allow your readers to draw their own conclusions as to the responsibility for the collision. First, that it was known to those in charge of the Titanic that we were in the iceberg region, that the atmospheric and temperature conditions suggested the near presence of icebergs, that a wireless message was received from a ship ahead of us, warning us that they had been seen in the locality of which latitude and longitude were given. Second, that at the time of the collision, the Titanic was running at a high rate of speed. Third, that the accommodation for saving passengers and crew was totally inadequate, being sufficient only for a total of about 950. This gave, with the highest possible complement of 3,400, a less than one in three chance of being saved in the case of accident. Fourth, that the number landed in the Carpathia, approximately 700, is a high percentage of the possible 950, and bears excellent testimony to the courage, resource, and devotion to duty of the officers and crew of the vessel. Many instances of their nobility and personal self-sacrifice are within our possession, and we know that they did all they could do with the means at their disposal. Fifth, that the practice of running mail and passenger vessels through fog and iceberg regions at a high speed is a common one. They are timed to run almost as an express train is run, and they cannot, therefore, slow down more than a few knots in time of possible danger. I have neither knowledge nor experience to say what remedies I consider should be applied, but perhaps the following suggestions may serve as a help. First, that no vessel should be allowed to leave a British port without sufficient boat and other accommodation to allow each passenger and member of the crew a seat, and that at the time of booking this fact should be pointed out to a passenger, and the number of the seat in the particular boat allotted to him then. Second, that as soon as is practicable after sailing, each passenger should go through boat drill in company with the crew assigned to his boat. Third, that each passenger boat engaged in the transatlantic service should be instructed to slow down to a few knots when in the iceberg region and should be fitted with an efficient searchlight. Yours faithfully, Lawrence Beasley. It seemed well, too, while on the Carpathia, to prepare as accurate an account as possible of the disaster, and to have this ready for the press, in order to calm public opinion, and to forestall the incorrect and hysterical accounts which some American reporters are in the habit of preparing on occasions of this kind. The first impression is often the most permanent, and in a disaster of this magnitude, where exact and accurate information is so necessary, preparation of a report was essential. It was written in odd corners of the deck and saloon of the Carpathia, and fell, it seemed very happily, into the hands of the one reporter who could best deal with it, the Associated Press. I understand it was the first report that came through and had a good deal of the effect intended. The Carpathia returned to New York in almost every kind of climatic conditions, icebergs, ice fields, and bitter cold to commence with, brilliant warm sun, thunder and lightning in the middle of one night, and so closely did the peel follow the flash that women in the saloon leaped up in alarm, saying rockets were being sent up again. Cold winds, most of the time, 
fogs every morning, and during a good part of one day, with the foghorn blowing constantly. Rain, choppy sea with the spray blowing overboard and coming in through the saloon windows. We said we had almost everything, but hot weather and stormy seas. So that, when we were told that Nantucket lightship had been sighted on Thursday morning from the bridge, a great sigh of relief went round to think New York and land would be reached before next morning. There is no doubt that a good many felt the waiting period of those four days very trying. The ship crowded far beyond its limits of comfort. The want of necessities of clothing and toilet, and above all, the anticipation of meeting with relatives on the pier, with, in many cases, the knowledge that other friends were left behind and would not return home again. A few looked forward to meeting on the pier their friends, to whom they had said, Au revoir on the Titanic's deck, brought there by a faster boat, they said, or at any rate, to hear that they were following behind us in another boat. A very few, indeed, for the thought of the icy water and the many hours' immersion seemed to weigh against such a possibility, but we encouraged them to hope the Californian and the Burma had picked some up. Stranger things have happened, and we had all been through strange experiences. But in the midst of this rather tense feeling, one fact stands out as remarkable. No one was ill. Captain Rostron testified that on Tuesday, the doctor reported a clean bill of health, except for frostbites and shaken nerves. There were none of the illnesses supposed to follow from exposure for hours in the cold night, and it must be remembered a considerable number swam about for some time when the Titanic sank, and then either sat for hours in their wet things or lay flat on an upturned boat with the seawater washing partly over them until they were taken off in a lifeboat. No scenes of women weeping and brooding over their losses hour by hour until they were driven mad with grief. Yet all this has been reported to the press by people on board the Carpathia. These women met their sorrow with the sublimest courage, came on deck, and talked with their fellow men and women face to face and in the midst of their loss, did not forget to rejoice with those who had joined their friends on the Carpathia's deck, or come with them in a boat. There was no need for those ashore to call the Carpathia a death ship, or to send coroners and coffins to the pier to meet her. Her passengers were generally in good health, and they did not pretend they were not. Presently, land came in sight, and very good it was to see it again. It was eight days since we left Southampton, but the time seemed to have stretched out to the crack of doom, and to have become eight weeks instead. So many dramatic incidents had been crowded into the last few days, that the first four peaceful, uneventful days, marked by nothing that seared the memory, had faded almost out of recollection. It needed an effort to return to Southampton, Cherbourg and Queenstown, as though returning to some event of last year. I think we all realized that time may be measured more by events than by seconds and minutes. What the astronomer would call 2.20 a.m., April 15, 1912, the survivors called the sinking of the Titanic. The hours that followed were designated 
being adrift in an open sea, and 4.30 a.m. was being rescued by the Carpathia. The clock was a mental one, and the hours, minutes, and seconds marked deeply on its face were emotions strong and silent. Surrounded by tugs of every kind, from which, as well as from every available building near the river, magnesium bombs were shot off by photographers, while reporters shouted for news of the disaster and photographs of the passengers, the Carpathia drew slowly to her station at the Cunard Pier, the gangways were pushed across, and we set foot at last on American soil, very thankful, grateful people. The mental and physical condition of the rescued as they came ashore has, here again, been greatly exaggerated. One description says we were half-fainting, half-hysterical, bordering on hallucination, only now beginning to realize the horror. It is unfortunate such pictures should be presented to the world. There were some painful scenes of meeting between relatives of those who were lost, but once again women showed their self-control and went through the ordeal in most cases with extraordinary calm. It is well to record that the same account added. A few, strangely enough, are calm and lucid. If, for few, we read a large majority, it will be much nearer to the true description of the landing on the Cunard Pier in New York. There seems to be no adequate reason why a report of such a scene should depict mainly the sorrow and grief, should seek for every detail to satisfy the horrible and the morbid in the human mind. The first questions the excited crowds of reporters asked as they crowded round were whether it was true that officers shot passengers, and then themselves, whether passengers shot each other, whether any scenes of horror had been noticed, and what they were. It would have been well to have noticed the wonderful state of health of most of the rescued, their gratitude for their deliverance, the thousand and one things that gave cause for rejoicing. In the midst of so much description of the hysterical side of the scene, place should be found for the normal, and I venture to think that the normal was the dominant feature in the landing that night. In the last chapter, I shall try to record the persistence of the normal all through the disaster. Nothing has been a greater surprise than to find people that do not act in conditions of danger and grief as they would be generally supposed to act, and, I must add, as they are generally described as acting. And so, with her work of rescue well done, the good ship Carpathia returned to New York. Everyone who came in her, everyone on the dock, and everyone who heard of her journey will agree with Captain Rostron when he says, I thank God that I was within wireless hailing distance, and that I got there in time to pick up the survivors of the wreck. End of chapter 7